1: Welcome to SiriusXM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. In many ways, it's hard to put Tony Fidel into words. Is he an innovator, a creator, a big thinker, an investor, or all of the above? The answer is yes. Tony is an American in Paris, but certainly well-known as working side-by-side with Steve Jobs at Apple, single-handedly placing his mark on the first iPod, as well as the first iPhone and the Nest system that part of the CV would be enough to fill a lifetime.
2: It wasn't just a one-on-one, but it could be Steve against the team going, we need glass instead of plastic on the front face of the iPhone, and we're going to do this. And we're like, God, damn, you know, and so we did it. And he pushed us because he didn't know all the details, but he could see in our minds that we're like, Yeah, we could probably, yeah, we could probably, but man, it's really putting us in risk. And we we laid out the risks for him. And he's like, I'm willing to take those risks. But
1: Tony's spirit extends beyond the historic accomplishment that put his vision on the map, changed a company's trajectory, and altered human behavior forever. Yes, just that. But long before he was working with Jobs to put a thousand songs in your pocket, or a phone and a thousand songs and endless apps in your pocket, Tony was thinking of evolution and mobility and culture, and, as a Detroiter, cars. As a designer, he's had his eyes on the auto industry for a long time, or perhaps just his eye on building things, which appropriately fueled the title of his latest project, called Build. It's a book about the lessons of quitting, on leaders who are mission-driven, and jobs himself. Today, he's deciding what is good and bad about technology and advocating for less screen time, especially with today's youth. But he's also pondering the future of automation, autonomous vehicles, and the car business in general. Tony Fidel is not short on enthusiasm, big ideas, new ideas, and context as it relates to today's technology. Car guy, creator, thinker. What's his perspective on mobility, cars, and culture as he builds his next chapter? Today, we find out. Hi, I'm Tony
2: Fidel, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein.
1: If we wanted to identify an individual who is the creator of culture, maybe an ambassador of a change in the way that we as humans have organized our lives, or even just organized our music collection or the temperature in our homes, it would be this man, Detroiter Tony Fidel. Welcome in.
2: Hey, Jason. Great to be here. It's wonderful to be talking to uh, a, a Detroiter in a Motown you know, audience. It's awesome.
1: Well, it's fantastic to have you on the program. You have a new product out, and uh, we, we've heard of some of your previous ones, but this one requires no installation, Tony.
2: <laughs> and no power. No anything. No power. It's, it's right. old school. It's very old school.
1: You've <laughs> gone old school. We, we, we've gone from music files and phones and, and, uh, and Nest uh, units to a book. You've written a book, Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making. So you're an author now. How does that feel?
2: Well, now it feels pretty good. I'll tell you, in in April, May, when the book, uh, just before the book came out, when it came out, I was pretty nervous, right? Right. This is an all analog technology. It's only me. <laughs> it's, it's my name on it. All the products I've done, you know, I've obviously been able to lead a lot of things, but, the, you know, they were team efforts. And in this, this case, it was also a very small team, but it was a team effort. But this is really me. This is my words. And, you know, when it goes out there, there's no, I can't hide from it. <laughs> so but and so I was nervous, but it has gotten such great reception around the world and i'm getting notes emails direct messages all everything every day almost every hour um and it's really feels great and now the book's going to be coming out in over 22 languages in the, in, in the coming wow. months amazing so, yeah so literally this has all been since may and it's my first you know first time at bat and so so far so good what'd you learn during the experience oh wow um, so build, you know, it was a two year effort. Um, it was very cathartic. I was able to go back in the 30, 35 years, depending on how you count over my career and got to go over a lot of, uh, you know, triumphs, but mostly I would say 80% was all about the failures and process them, especially the, the latest failures. Um, so this, this book is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very raw. Um, I, I, I told it like it is. I did not pull punches. And, um, and really trying to uh, help people. I, you know, literally, I wrote it as if I was 20 years old again. And what would I want to know? What were the things that my mentors have t- taught me over time? Right. The only reason why I'm here today talking to you and your audience is because I had mentors who helped me along the way, combined with lots of hard work, of course but mentors at those key junction points in my career that could give me feedback on on me as a person, as a leader, the things I was doing. And if it wasn't for those people helping to reduce the noise and really get to what mattered, you know, you you can go off in all kinds of crazy directions. So this book is really to honor them. And I call it a mentor in a box. And just taking all those lessons learned from from my mentors, like my grandfather, you know, right there in in in, in garages in in Detroit, in Detroit, uh, a bowling alley in Detroit, you know, yes. and then and then working with uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Campbell and a whole host of people in between, um, you know, trying to take those lessons and and reflect them back so that people can digest them and use them really in any kind of part of a career. So whether you're trying to build yourself, your career, a team, a product, a company, what have you, it's all about human nature. And so that was what was really interesting was that I got to pull back and go, wait a second, all the things I learned are really about human nature. It's not, this book's not about bits and bytes and technical stuff, it really isn't. It's just about tried and true things. And um, the un- the reason why I call it unorthodox is because in Silicon Valley, the orthodoxy of Silicon Valley is to be unorthodox. In other words, you go and you have to use the latest technology, go and disrupt and everything else. This book is unorthodox because it speaks to the orthodox of human nature. In other words, it's so counter to the, to the, to the way people think in Silicon Valley and in the tech business. And we just get back to the humanity of it all and go to things, you know, things that have been in our culture for, for centuries. And so it's just bringing those things back up to light and stripping away the technology, actually.
1: It's a bit of a blueprint, if you will, for, for those who, who need to navigate this this kind of world. I found it interesting that you write an entire chapter about quitting. <laughs> and you you talk about when things aren't going well that sometimes you have to quit and you quit Apple three times.
2: Yeah. What's yeah. the
1: lesson you're trying to impart there?
2: What I'm, What I'm trying to say is, if you're in a system that is not helping to create something um, to better the world, you're on the right, you're not on the right mission, or you're not going about it the right way, or there's a politics getting in the way of the mission. You know, it's just all kind of the mission's window dressing and everybody's just kind of infighting and what have you, or we're not going along the right path. You know, uh, put your money where your mouth is. If you don't like it, stand up for it and make the be the change you wish to see. And if people don't want to see that and you go all the way to the top and say, no, this is not right. I'm going to tell you why. And you're not giving me any good reasons why. Well, guess what? This isn't a place for me because this isn't going to work. Because I've suffered before um, where I sat in roles that I didn't like um, for uh, sometimes too long um, and because I thought it was going to change and it didn't. And the you know the best way to make the change is to make it happen yourself, right? That's what I've done with the products. But you also have to do it with the cultures um, that we live in and we create. And so, to me, you know, that's really a part of it. You know, a lot of companies look at SpaceX. If those people didn't quit. Uh, you know Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all of these different rocket companies they wouldn't have started SpaceX and the same thing goes with all these electric vehicle companies you know rivian or where have you you know Tesla in some cases right people left where they were in because they say it was wrong they were trying to fight for doing EVs or, or a new way of manufacturing whatever and they left to go build the thing that they thought was right and they go to change the world that's what I've always found is you might learn something but if you can't do it at the place you want to do it at, well, then you're going to have to go somewhere else or create that culture and create that team to build it, to to realize the mission you really want to see.
1: A fascinating piece of it too, uh, related to management style and and just being in the workplace was really a an entire chapter devoted to, I know we're on satellite radio here, but I'll just say a-holes. Uh, <laughs> yep. And that was uh, a, a term that's been used to describe you. There was a there was a headline that uh, that basically said, "Don't call Tony Fidel an a hole. He prefers to be mission driven." But you do make a distinction between being mission driven, uh, a mission driven a hole, and a controlling a hole. Right. And 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 the important thing there is someone who's mission driven has a why behind what they're doing, not not necessarily. They're doing, not necessarily doing things because they want it done their way. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. You're doing it for a bigger purpose. You're mission driven. You're trying to manifest something in the world that's never seen, right? You're revolutionizing. You're trying to change something in a dramatic way. And a lot of people, you know, as long as you are not criticizing and judging people, but their work, that's okay. You can judge their work. You can't judge the person. Now, they might be not be the right person for the job and you need to you know change things, but you can't demean people, right? And so when you're all about the mission and you're all about trying to drive your team and your team wants you to drive to make sure we complete that mission, you need to be critical about things, especially all the things that touch the consumer that really matter, not the little micromanagement stuff. That's all about boosting up your ego, No, we're talking about the things that matter for the customer, whether that's an end consumer, another business or what have you. You need to look at that level of detail. We see that in many of the autos in the car companies today. You know, there's a whole new thing. If I look at it, you know, Jim Farley, he's a great guy, right? But he is mission driven, right? Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford. If you look at how much change is happening in that company just over the last two years, three years, it's incredibly impressive. He's moving mountains. And, yes, I'm sure a lot of people are like, God damn it, he's an asshole. He just laid off people, blah, blah, blah. They're all pissed off. But he's on the right mission to do the right thing to save the company and save lots of jobs. And it's hard work. And he's going to be criticized over and over, but it's not because he's doing it for the, his ego. He's doing it for the right reasons for the company to survive well beyond him, right, and, and taking it beyond uh, into the next generations so that it can live on and be you know a, a Motown icon like it always has been.
1: Let's talk about your relationship with Steve Jobs, who comes up in the book quite a bit. Where was he on that spectrum?
2: Uh, he was much more on the mission driven side than the ego side. Um, I knew him in version, I guess you could say 2.0 of him. 2.0, right Yeah, you know it, it, I heard at General Magic, I was at a company called General Magic, first my first job out of school, really, and that had the, the uh, that we were trying to create the the iPhone 15 years too soon. And I would hear uh, stories. About Steve 1.0 when he first started Apple and when he was out, he was driving the Mac team and these people were the essentially the creators of the Mac and he was driving. I heard all kinds of crazy ego driven stories. Okay, but then when I uh, started working him w- with him in early 2000s, he had already gone through his next experience. So next computer that failed that was ultimately bought by Apple. He had all he he was inspired, uh, in a way, from from uh, from Apple. So he had a lot of different humbling experiences. And he, when we were working together, he was very, very mission-driven, whether that was the, you know, whether it was the rebirth of the Mac, the iPod, obviously the iPhone as well. He was very, very much mission-driven. And um, And, you know, you hear a lot of those stories, but people don't delineate the difference. They just say, he was tough. And they all go, oh, he was just an asshole. Oh, excuse me, a hole, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 you have to really understand the motivations behind it, and not just you know he's tough and he just you know making me feel bad, and usually that's because your ego is getting affected by some way because your your work is being judged and or being pushed to the limits, and he's seeing something in, in individuals that can they can go beyond the limits they've self imposed, and that's the great thing about mission driven people is that they see stuff in you, they believe in you, and they push you beyond your own barriers, you know? And so they, you know, you might hate it. You're like, oh, I can't stand them. But you wake up two, three, five, 10 years later, and you go, wow, that was an incredible experience. It was very difficult, but I learned so much and I did so much. And so you have to really understand what is the motivations, because these driven leaders, uh, typically the good ones are gonna be mission driven and they are going to push you to be a better professional.
1: You even had um, moments where he was incredibly personal. He wanted to talk to you about family and life and kids and things of that nature. So as driven as he was, he also had that other side, which you also write about in the book, which is a, um, a, a caring, nurturing side as a manager. Two yeah. very different things
2: of two very different things and you have to know when you're going to be one or the other depending on the time of day and who you're talking to and and the situation and um he you know like I said version 2.0 of from my point of view that's what he did and he was doing being a master and I got to watch him and and emulate him in in certain in certain aspects so it was it was really uh, rewarding and eye opening
1: tony as a child growing up in the detroit area did you ever envision that you would have the kind of technological or cultural impact that you've had on, let's say, cars and culture?
2: <laughs> um, no, I was just a kid. So I wasn't, you know, all I was doing was banging away in the garage, building soapbox derby racers with my grandfather, uh, repairing lawnmowers, you know, gardening, all were of that working around the house in, you know, in Chandler Park, uh, you know, section of Detroit and a ham tramock as well. Um, so no, I never thought that way, but my grandfather was the person who set me on the path to build. You know, I would go to that Van Dyke lanes bowling alley and get in the, in the basement with him. And he would have all his tools and we would go and fix the bowling alley and we would go and fix houses and and all these kinds of things. And this was from the age of three and four with my brother also was a younger brother who still lives in the Detroit area. We would go and fix things and build stuff. And he put those tools in our hands. We were so young. And he goes, look, everything around us, humans made. You're a human. You can make things too. You can repair them. You can make them better. Don't be daunted. And he empowered us you know and and gave us agency to go and create when we were you know single digit ages little kids much to the chagrin of our of my grandmother my mom uh, and my uh, and my mom when we're using power tools at the age of 4 and 5 you know we could get we could get seriously hurt so that's the wonderful thing that um you know detroit gave and we you know I, it was a depression era garage he saved every nut and bolt and every mm. spring and screw and whatever it was it was all there and um and uh, it was just a great playground to, to grow up in and learn.
1: Your father was a sales executive with Levi Strauss Company. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Jeans. You had jeans. Yeah, jeans. You had good jeans.
2: <laughs> I had great fashion growing up. I'll tell you that. You had good I got jeans. To, I got a I got a great sense of fashion from him, and I got to get the latest stuff in the seventies because in the seventies, you know, Levi's was the was the was the thing, right? Sure. It, it was even. Black market currency in Russia uh, back in the '70s. So, uh, so we were, you know, my brother and I were the styling kids uh, at school.
1: You discovered computers when you were 12 years old and caddied at a local golf club to raise money to buy your first Apple II. Amazingly, yeah,
2: yeah Apple II, Country Club of Detroit, CCD, club of Detroit right, right there in uh, Gross Point Farms. I would, you know, I'd literally walk there or bike there and then do my, you know, caddy each day uh, to uh, to try to make as much money as I could. So, And my grandfather would match it. So he said, whatever I did in the summer, he would match and th- help me get the Apple II. He never touched a computer. He didn't even know what one was, but he wow. saw that I was enamored by it. And he saw it was a tool, just like his hammer, his saw, what have you. And he was like, okay, if this is what you really want, we're going to go figure this out for you. And it was, um, it just set me on off on an amazing path. So, and, you Mac, and
1: you were perusing Mac and you were perusing Macworld in your spare time and dreaming of working with the team responsible for creating the computer. I mean, I studied uh, computer engineering at the University of Michigan, but you could you have imagined that you would be at the epicenter of a cultural revolution with the development of the iPod.
2: I will say that I thought I was at the center of a cultural revolution at General Magic. So when I was surrounded by my heroes, um, we were creating something that the world was convinced, they didn't even see it yet, but they were convinced that we were going to take over Microsoft and we were gonna be the next hottest thing in the world at General Magic. And so I had drank that Kool-Aid and I was all in at the age of 21, 22, working day and night, and there's a movie all about it. And I said, I recommend that, you know, your, your, your listeners, viewers um, tune into the general magic, of the movie, because it's an incredible story about failure and resilience and um, about creating the iPhone 15 years too soon. But that's where I thought we were gonna change the world. So I got tempered when it was the biggest failure of the time. Most people have never heard of the company, but it was the biggest failure of the time in the tech world. And uh, it, it literally changed my way of thinking that not everything was going to be a success. And, and uh, uh, for 10 years, uh, during and after General Magic, it was an utter failure for me. It was all learning experiences till the iPod came out. And I was hopeful the iPod would be success. But I never wanted to convince myself it was because of the disaster that was General Magic, because it kind of when you start inhaling that exhaust, um, your own exhaust, you can really get off track fast. Mm-hmm. And you can all automatically assume you're gonna be successful. So for me, I'm always, let's do the right thing, let's hope for success, but let's never get ahead of ourselves and think we are a success. Even after the first iPod or the iPhone shipped or even the first Nest product shipped, you cannot rest on your loyals. Well, and
1: the- one, one of your principles is, is to make mistakes. And, and this mm-hmm. is a, a universalism uh, that is often not adopted by uh, entrepreneurs or, or maybe not as accepted as well as it could be. But making and correcting mistakes takes leadership. And sometimes you'll only learn by uh, going through the product process, making those mistakes. And you say it sometimes takes three versions of something to get it right. And a lot of companies fail or have a crisis of confidence because they try to get data for something that doesn't exist,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, you have encapsulated well. There's the first thing is whenever you're doing anything revolutionary, anything really new, there's no experts in the world for it. You might have expertise and you have people with lots of expertise, but we're all coming together in a new domain to do a new thing that we've never done before. So it's going to happen that you're going to fail. Just try to limit those failures and you're going to need time to work out those things first inside the team and what you're building and fix those things. But then when you get out to market, fix the things after the customer experiences. and, And then you have to figure out how to make the right business, right? To make sure the business works. So first is getting the right team, everybody together to make something that's Hopefully impactful and important. Then fine tuning it for the customer. Then fine tuning it for the business world. And as as you as you rightly said, you know people have crisis of confidence, especially in big organizations. And it takes multiple years to go through these versions, right? And so in uh, most corporate worlds, you know maybe CEOs last for six years, and you don't even have time to go through all of those different versions. Um, And then somebody decides, the new executive decides to kill it, right? And the reason being is because they all want data. Um, They forget that when you make the first product in a new category that you're creating, you're using your opinion. There is no data you can get. You can get insights. You can get little gleams of data to help you make better risk-adjusted decisions. But they're almost all, a lot of the biggest ones are coming from your gut, the things that you think customers are going to respond to. You can't just go ask a customer. And this, you know, what I learned from Philips and then saw really firsthand with, with Steve Jobs, is you just can't go ask people what they want. They don't know what they want. They don't right? know just what they like, want. Just like in cars. Car oh, design. I want a buggy that goes, or horses that go faster, right? Um, as opposed to a car. So you really, and look at all the 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 revolution and then the evolution of the auto in the first, you know, decades of the auto. It's so, it's changed so many times. And we're seeing that now with the electric mobility revolution, right? Uh, not just cars, but two wheels and three wheels, all those things. We're going through a massive Cambrian explosion again, like it was in the early 1900s in the car industry. Now we're seeing it in the mobility industry.
1: I had this conversation recently at the Detroit Auto Show related to EVs and one automaker executive actually compared it to the development of the iPhone and the transition from BlackBerry to iPhone because most consumers, most users, couldn't imagine that they couldn't have a keyboard that was mm-hmm. on a phone mm-hmm. but in fact what was being created was a better screen that also had a keyboard and after that realization i mean <laughs> the rest is history uh you know the percentage of iphone users out there versus blackberry today <laughs> yeah
2: well it's blackberry you know zero uh-huh. right and right. really it's because blackberry was, it wasn't just because it was a better screen, but it was a different target audience. And it was actually a full, it was a general purpose device as the iPhone. BlackBerry, at the most point, it was mostly a messenger. It was an okay phone. People use it as a phone, but they, it, was, it was a better SMS machine in a right. way, instead of using the 12-key keyboard. Um, so it was really a messaging machine for productivity. It wasn't a, it, for business people. It wasn't a product, it wasn't a consumer device that had music and videos and internet browsing and everything else. It was really meant for this corporate world. And so, you know, looking back now we see that, but at the time, you know, everyone's like, Crackberry is it, you got to do that. And, you know, in the book and build I you know I go through the, you know, kind of the story of how that had to go down inside of Apple and it was not always pretty to finally decide that it was going to be the keyboard, uh, a screen-based keyboard as opposed to a physical one.
1: So what is your opinion on where we are today and how far things have come? Because the iPod effectively became the iPhone and you said you were early on the iPhone anyway, 15 years too early. Tell me what you mean by that.
2: Was the world not ready for it? Well, look, if we think about it, if we think about um, uh, the iPhone, all right, it has changed, changed so much. It's changed the world, right? But it, it had to be at the right place in time when society understood the need for it. So that's one thing. The second thing is the technology had to be enabled, and then there had to be enough technology, just close enough that you could put those those things, the, the pieces together to make a product. And the society, at least certain people in the society, had to have enough of the problems or understand enough of the problems that the iPhone was solving to bring that together. So at General Magic, we had an incredible team, the smartest people at the time. This was in the early 90s, but that was before the internet. That was before Wi-Fi. That was before mobile data, really before mobile phones. Most people didn't even have mobile phones, and they were only analog, and they were very expensive then. People didn't really have email in the early 90s. They didn't have messaging. They didn't have social media. They didn't have uh, uh, online ticketing and downloadable games, all of these things. We were solving that problem in early 1990s. So think about it. I didn't even have those problems. I didn't have a mobile phone. I didn't know what, we were just solving because we knew at some point it was the right thing to do, but the technology wasn't right. And the second thing is, because we didn't have the technology or early internet days or music or digital music days or anything, people didn't understand even the problems we were trying to solve. Even if we could solve them with the technology, we didn't understand, they didn't understand the problems we were trying to solve. So we were in this sandbox basically impressing the geek next to us. Yeah, on your own. <laughs> on our own. And maybe it was going to be right or wrong. It took 15 years after we had the internet. We knew what online travel was. We knew what you know, online shopping was, messaging, all this stuff. So, because in 2007, what were we doing? You, were, you had a mobile phone for communications. You had an iPod for, for digital media. And then you had your computer for digital productivity, You know, a laptop. And you had to carry all three of these things around. And there were certain people, mobile professionals and other people who had all three things. And then the iPhone came and was like, we're solving all of this in this one thing that fits Hmm. in your pocket, right? And and so they knew that the problem is we had enough of the technology. It was close. It wasn't great yet. But iPhone 1, just like I said, it wasn't until iPhone 4 that things really started taking off, that it all came together. And then it became the revolution as we know it today.
1: And then nobody needed an iPod.
2: And then nobody need. well, that was the other major thing, which was cannibalizing the real only growing product at Apple in the early 2000s. You know, the thing that actually uh, brought go- glory back to Apple, um, which was the iPod. And we had to kill it um, to allow the iPhone to succeed. So that's yeah. pretty, it's, that was very daring, just as much as the original first iPod and, and committing to that.
1: What do you remember about those days, about making those decisions?
2: They were existential. So for Apple in 2001 with the iPod, I wasn't even clear I was going to go. I was a contractor. So I was, con- I was contracted and I put together the first six weeks, designed you know the, the basics of the iPod in the first six weeks uh, as being a contractor. But then Steve's like, you're going to come on and build, build this thing for us and run the team. And I was like, uh, no, I don't think so. Apple had more or less only 1% market share in the computer market in the US only. There was no Apple retail. Nobody in, there were no retailers. Best Buy, all the different, weren't even carrying Apple products in the stores. Apple had $500 million in debt, $250 million uh, in the bank. Uh, It was luckily break even depending on the quarter. So to want to say you're going to go and and I had 10 years of failure in Silicon Valley to say I'm going to go work night and day for a company that's failing at, 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 why should I go do this? So that was the first thing. So it was existential for, for, for Apple to say, oh my God, we got to do iPod because we can't get the Mac to move anymore because Microsoft and Intel was just too dominating at the time. And then ultimately moving forward. And then And So that started to work out and iPod was over 50% of revenue at Apple. Um, and it was a much cheaper product than the other products um, for many quarters at Apple. Right. So that was, that was one phase. So I, you know, I obviously did the iPod and everything else, but then when it came to the iPhone, we started seeing, I uh, I, cell phones at the time started to adopt iPod like capabilities doing digital music. And then we're like, "Uh Oh, Hmm. people are only going to carry one product with them. Is it going to be is it going to be an iPod or is it going to be a phone? And if the phone adopts these technologies, Oh, we could have, we could be, it could be over. So that was another existential thing where we're finally getting wind at our backs. Things are taking off. People are, you know, Apple brands getting, you know, polished up again. And people are like, ooh, what's going on at Apple? Now we have to take that serious decision to now kill off or start to kill off and build something that's gonna be fully uh, competitive with the iPod. And uh, obviously that was a big decision. It was the right decision. Um, and, you know, we, it took two and a half years to figure out what the right right uh, way to solve the equation would be. And obviously it was the iPhone. After the break, I'll continue
1: my conversation with Tony Fidel, designer, inventor, mentor, and author. And to see my interview with Tony, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 70 episodes. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with Tony Fidel, designer, inventor, mentor, and author. And to see my interview with Tony, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 70 episodes. As we sit here today in 2022, and you reflect back on this now because you have room to reflect on it. Um, And to your earlier point, there are moments when you now can reflect and understand some of the twists and turns and the learnings. Are you just amazed at how it all developed?
2: Oh, yeah, very much so. You know, there were, we worked very hard. We worked incredibly hard. We had a team of people um, who were, were geniuses, right? They were just, and they really wanted to see this thing exist. Um, and so we did it and we never rested on our laurels. We literally pushed 18 generations of iPod, Uh, for me, three generations of iPhone to make sure we got to that place where it was was there. And then you look back and you go, my God, we changed the world so dramatically. And and now, to me, it's incumbent on me now to make sure that um, these technologies that we create, that we change the world with, also we can create unintended consequences, um, such as we're seeing digital screen addiction, screen digital device addiction. Right? Screen, you, you've, been, you've been outspoken about that. Very much so, much to the chagrin of Cupertino. You know, I had a lot of friends there who were calling me going, what are you doing, Tony? Stop this. You know, stop going on TV and talking about digital you know, digital screen addiction and things like that. I'm like, no, this is incredibly important. You know, uh, we can bring information to the world with these amazing devices, but we can also do harm. Not that we're doing the harm, but they can be a conduit for it. And we need to make sure it's imperative that the creators also watch over those things because we don't know what's gonna happen to them. And we go, you know, when they're out in the wild and we go and put in the right guardrails and things of that nature, to make sure we do the right thing for our society so we can have healthy individuals, healthy societies, so we can have healthy markets that people wanna buy these products in the future. You yourself
1: actually turn off notifications for everything at times. And in social settings, you make sure your phone is not on the table or in your pocket, ironically enough. But what do you say to those who suggest that the reason that today's younger generation does not drive is that it doesn't have to? That the mobile phone and its access to the world delivers the kind of trans- transportative fantasy and freedom that the car did for the boomer generation.
2: <laughs> you subscribe to that? Absolutely. Look, my, my son is 15 and he hasn't even, got, you know, I've taken out, ha, him out on a track before, but he has no interest in getting a car and getting ready when he turns 16 in just a couple of months to be able to go and drive. He has no. He's like, okay, I'm just gonna get an Uber or a Lyft or whatever it is, because it's freedom for them, right? So they, you know, he, that's how he was. He was learning when he was ten or twelve or whatever. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna just do this or deliveries come or Amazon or what have you. And so it's a different way of thinking. And if I think about it, we we, we love cars, right? We love yep. the culture of cars, but also our planet can't survive with all of these cars. We can't have all of these. We see the massive lanes of traffic. Every year we add another lane and we still have more traffic. What's so nice about the the mobile phone revolution, the smartphone revolution, is it makes us rethink mobility. Not just from, uh, I'm going to replace my own car with something that's going to be either self-driving or driven by a a person like a, a Lyft or an Uber. But it allows us to also go, wait a second, I'm going to take a two-wheel scooter, or I'm going to take a two-wheel you know, e Vespa, or something else. It allows us to think about how we, we change our lifestyle from what we grew up with our parents. And I'm living here in Paris. And the amount of mobility solutions, and I've been here seven years, the amount of mobility solutions we have on two, three, four wheels is so dramatically different. And it has changed so much over the last five years. It's astounding to me. And I love living in a place where um, it's so dynamic, especially around mobility, because it's such a love of mine, you know, growing up in the, in the car culture of, of Motown.
1: Well, in fact, uh, the Paris uh, mayor in recent years has been very um, out front and, and outspoken about wanting to eliminate vehicles in the city center. And of course, following a lot of other dense urban environments uh, around the world and across Europe about congestion charges and things of that nature.
2: We have them in London now, right? Correct. In many cities around the world. And it's even come to Silicon Valley now. You know, to, truth be told, I love cars. I have lots of cars, but I don't even own a car. And this might sound like a heretical talk. I don't even own a car here in Paris.
1: Yeah. How do you feel about creating, introducing, and delivering all of the devices that you have to help humankind? Do you feel responsible, delighted, guilty?
2: delighted, uh, responsible. Hmm. I wouldn't say guilty, perhaps. Um, I would say concerned, you know, for the unintended consequences and that we make sure we go after. But if we didn't have those technologies, we wouldn't have the world we live in today. Just imagine if we did not have the smartphone and the smartphone revolution for COVID. So during COVID, let's say COVID happened in 2005, six, even seven. 2007 but you just when the smartphone revolution started imagine the world of co- of living through covid without that smartphone revolution when we didn't have you know deliveries when we didn't have really amazon or these other things to help us in our contained environments it would have i think it would have been an incredible disaster and covid been even worse cuz everyone would have had to still go about their daily activities the way they were doing them so yeah i think that You know, these important changes that came through these revolutions that I got to be a part of um, are incredibly important, and I wouldn't want to change the world. And so I don't feel guilt, but I do think we need to continually improve them and make sure they're not damaging individuals and societies.
1: You mentioned that you're a car guy, Tony. What have you owned?
2: Oh, God, what have I owned? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. uh, I had my first uh, Monty, I think it was a 78 Monte Carlo. Okay. Uh, that I was handed down by my grandfather uh, that I drove uh in the early 80s but you know uh you know I have uh the latest edition 4GT the the previous generation 4GT I have a 69 Bronco oh, you know fully wow. restored Bronco Those I have are a 59 BK. El Camino a 59 oh. El Camino that's undergoing right now a electrification I'm so into electrifying old cars Are you are you Oh I love I got are you kidding me when you go to Pebble Beach, you've been to Pebble, right? You were just Fair. doing all your episodes in Pebble. Correct. You go, well, oh, these are gorgeous cars. They're worth <laughs> millions. You're like, you touch them. You're like, oh, these are, they're sumptuous. You're like, oh, it just gets your heart racing. And then when you see these old cars and they start them up and they belch black smoke and you're like, this is worth $10 million and it. You know, it might sound slightly (laughs) good. And then you look at it and then the soot is getting all over the car. That's perfectly pristinely clean. You're like, what the WTF? (laughs) I'm not paying 10 million for that. I'm going to, and then I'm worried about it running. I'm seeing, you know, when you're in Monterey and you see all those cars broken down on the side of the road, it reminds me of the seventies growing up, you know, you (laughs) saw broken down cars up and down the road. You don't really see that anymore.
1: Not usually. You know, unless it was
2: a, a big flat or, you know, but it's very rare compared to what you were in the 70s. And in the 60s, 50s, I could imagine it was even worse. So why do I want to own a incredibly multi million dollar beautiful automobile if I can't use it?
1: That's yeah, a fair point. It's a fair point.
2: <laughs> so I think You're- I think we're going to see a, an incredible revolution in the cars and culture world for people who really like older cars. Because for so many reasons, because it's like the parts are going to be harder to get, it's going to get more expensive. So you're going to see a lot of these, I wouldn't say the top end, you know, the top and the perfect ones that you don't want to touch, you know, you want a new old stock, it's got to be perfect. But then there's these mid runners, you know, that you fixed over time, they were dense and rust, you're going to want to electrify those more, then go and try to rebuild them and find all the parts from around the world that I think that is a. That's for certain people, but I think the next generation, especially the younger generation of car enthusiasts are going to see this more and more.
1: You've owned an R8 before, right? An Audi R8? Oh,
2: R8, V10, manual. I have yeah. a, a, the original all-road manual, a six-speed. I, I, you know, I still have. Uh, so I, I got FJ40, original, all-original FJ40.
1: From the 70s.
2: Yeah, yeah, 70.
1: So you 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 clearly like gasoline engine vehicles as well. Do you, do you
2: like? I mean,
1: anybody who likes a V ten likes gas engine. Vehicles. Well, look, that was
2: all I could buy at the time. But frankly, sure. when I see some, you know, when I see the latest cars now, and it's all got a gas engine, I could care less.
1: Okay. What do you like in the EV space now? That's brand new.
2: I'll tell you the iconic five. Sure. I'll tell you that is pretty damn cool for the price point for where it's at. It feels like to me it's the new hot hatch. You know, I, I think like, geez, you got to give it to Hyundai. You got to give it to the Koreans. Like Genesis, they're yeah. doing a pretty good job with the EV stuff. You know, the Japanese are out to lunch, but the Koreans are doing a pretty good job. Um, so I have to give them that. I'm liking what, you know, uh, Jim's doing uh, at Ford, you know, the F-150, the new one, like that's incredible. Um uh the 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 new um what else do i like i have tesla of course you like right? lucid oh yeah i was in a lucid actually a couple of friends of mine who did iphone and ipod they work for me they're actually in charge of those programs it's funny that the ipod and iphone teams even some people from nest are leading the teams at rivian leading the teams at lucid they're at tesla it's so wonderful to see all of these because you know, we were all fanatics, you know. Together, you know, we would always talk about our Audi, this because we RS Six Avant. I love the RS Six Avant, right? We would go and you know do all this stuff, and now they're all doing, you know, uh, uh, doing great things and revolutionizing the auto industry. So that's so wonderful to see.
1: What does Tony Fidel think about Elon Musk and what Elon Musk has done?
2: Well, Elon's a friend, so I'll, I'll, I have to I have to say that I think. It's incredibly impressive. You have to respect all of the things he's done. What he's done was so hard. We talked together in 2008, and you know he wanted me to come and, and work with him um, back then, and I didn't because um, I wanted to do iPhone and the Nest. But um, to watch where he was and watch what's materialized—SpaceX, uh, you know, Starlink, and now battery factories and new ways of doing manufacturing—and nobody, everybody counted them out. You have to just be absolutely uh, in awe of what uh, he has been able to manifest in this world and change the whole auto industry. Look, everybody in the auto industry—it's—it's—it's it's, it's done. The EV transition is done in the mindset of the auto world. It's—it's going to happen. It's happening. It's what have you? Who did that? Who singularly did that? You know, we were talking about GM tried, right? All these people tried, but it probably not the maybe like General Magic it was the. The society wasn't right. The technology wasn't right. All that stuff wasn't right. He hit it and he stayed in there and there were so many naysayers. And so you have to give him credit for
1: that. Yeah, he would fit well into your book, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What do you see as the main stumbling block for humankind when it comes to widespread autonomous vehicle adoption?
2: When it comes to AVs, I have been a naysayer for the longest time. Um, I still am to a certain regard. I know they're going to happen. OK, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. But it's also what and how. You know, when I saw uh, what was going on in 2015, even 2012 around this stuff, Sebastian Thrawn, who did the first self-driving car for the DARPA Grand Challenger, he's a close friend. You know, I watched all of those things happen. And I was like, I understood the technology, the computers, the sensors, all this stuff. We are still at the very, very, we're not even version 1.0 of this stuff. We are still in this, you know, kind of general magic moment. <laughs> and we're trying to figure out what it is. But people are pitching, oh my God, we're going to have all this. It's going to come in two years. I was like, this is utter BS. And there's a, there's a whole group of us um, that get together. And I called BS on this in 2016. I said, this is stupid. Like, yes, we need to do it, but stop wasting all this time and money. And Uber was in it and Lyft was building stuff. I was like, this is just ridiculous because they were like, oh, the AVs coming, is coming fast. If you knew about the systems, if you really see it, we're lucky to see what we're seeing today. And even then, it is not the vision what we've been planted in our heads. To me, you have to crawl before you walk, walk before you run, and people think it's just gonna take over everything. I think you know, those dedicated kind of city shuttles or campus shuttles, these other things, they can do that because they can work within restricted bounds and you can you know, unleash them as you get better and better capabilities. But to think that we're gonna have self-driving, um, full self-driving as we were told, and you know, all res- due respect to Elon, we- we're not there. We're not even close to there for the way that we envision the Jetsons scenario of you know, things that just you know, drive or even fly around with us, without us interacting with them.
1: Can transportation be as emotive when it's autonomous as when we have to physically drive cars?
2: Emotion and I think the cars come when you're in a car, it's interesting to be driven fast by someone else. Like you've been in, I'm sure, an F1 car or a trainer car sure. or F formula Ford or something, a trainer, and yep. you get driven around by a professional and you're like, oh my God, it's great. But you can only do that so many times and then but it's an exhilarating experience because it's very different. Here, what we're talking about is something very safe. It's not going to have a personality and you have no control over it. So I think it's going to be much more of a mundane, you know, it's just like getting on a bus. Like, is that a motive?
0: No.
1: <laughs>
2: you you want the depends control, and it's when you have the control, and, you, and that's great. And I love driving around a track. I hate driving in traffic. <laughs>
1: that's true. <laughs> I guess it depends who's next to you, if the bus is. Next to you. <laughs> Finally, a couple of things, Tony. Uh, look into your crystal ball. What does the transportation world look like two decades out, fifty years out?
2: Oh, geez. Uh, 50 years? Forget it. I've I've learned that technology has been changing and accelerating its change since I've been a kid. So I can't even predict what it's going to look 50 years. 10 years? I hate to do predictions. But look, I think we're going to see a much more multimodal kind of way we get around. Two, three, and four wheels. Um, I'm not so sure about flying cars. I think they're big boy toys. They might be good for emergency services and certain things, but I really don't believe in this whole EV toll thing. I think it's just a bunch of uh, rich guys trying to, you know, you know, one up each other at the bar. Um, uh, So, but I do think micro mobility, medium mobility and cars are all going to change buses. We're going to see smaller shuttles. We're going to see, inner. we're going to see urban centers change dramatically. Like we're seeing in Paris where cars or anything that is either autonomous or or driven by a person are going to be speed limited. They're going to have congestion pricing. You're going to see that they can't have any pollution. Um, We're gonna see, uh, you know, charging networks that are gonna be incredible, probably wireless charging networks in many many respects um, in just 10 years from now. Um, We are going to see incredible new things like when I was at Goodwood this year you know one third of the cars on that tr- on on the racing up the hill were electric yeah like you would you would never Basically. like people are like what? yes and everyone else is like oh I love the hearing the sounds and I'm like Jesus it's so much nicer like when I go to Formula E or I go to Goodwood and I can talk <laughs> to people while we're you know this as opposed to yelling at each other and being worn out um, so I think we're going to see less pollution in urban centers. We're going to see less noise in urban centers. We're going to see more noise restrictions. I think mobility is going to change dramatically, and you're going to see a lot less of the young youth buying cars, as we we're already seeing. It's going to continue that way. and I think we're going to see revolutions from India, Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, where the two and three wheelers are really taking off, electric in China as well. That's going to, inf- it's going to move across um, the world in different continents. And we're going to see a lot more two-wheelers and three-wheelers uh, electric versions in these urban centers.
1: Okay. So that's the crystal ball on transportation. Give me one more crystal ball moment on communication.
2: I think what it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I think you're never going to be disconnected again. I think that... Uh, you know, the way we're just we're talking now, this is going to be the, you know, much more common than just the voice only way. So it's going to be the, the video conferencing. That's how the kids are growing up. And I think that my daughter, she has grown up with Siri and, and Amazon Alexa and these kinds of things. She didn't know how to read and write. My, my older boys, they knew they didn't they didn't have Siri. They didn't have these voice assistants. So they were interacting the way we interact with our digital devices. My daughter, who couldn't read and write when she's two, two and three, she learned how to use all these devices with voice only, right? It was incredibly empowering for her. And I was watching her use it. I was like, so when she's communicating, she's communicating only in voice, using all these things. So I think there's communications between people and then there's communications between us and devices. And I think between us and devices, that's going to change more, but between each other, I think it's going to be very similar.
1: And somehow guys like us, car guys, and you're about to head off to Germany uh, next week, but somehow car guys like us will find a track somewhere and spin four wheels and do burnouts and, and put the foot down on the accelerator, right?
2: Yeah, and it's going to probably most likely be EV. <laughs> right. Right. because it's faster. There's so many benefits to it. So I'm, I, can't, I can't wait for the next generation of cars and culture and what's gonna emerge from, and, and mobility and culture. I, I guess you could say mobility and culture and what the youth do with it. I can't wait to see what the hot August nights looks like in the EV revolution <laughs> and, and what the what the hot two wheelers are, whether that's a motorcycle or something smaller. I am so at the opportunity and the revolution that's upon us now. And it's going to continue. I'm just so excited.
1: His new book requires no batteries, no installation. (laughs) It's better than a thousand songs in your pocket. It is 35 years in the field. It's called build an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. This has been a conversation worth having. Thank you so much, Tony Fidel. Jason. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks again to Tony Fidel, designer, inventor, mentor, and author, for being my guest today. And to see my interview with Tony, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 70 episodes. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road.